Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy. I'm your host, Alan Weil. Medicare Advantage plans are privately administered insurance plans that provide an alternative to the traditional Medicare program, which allows enrollees to see any participating provider. In exchange for a restriction on choice, enrollees can receive various benefits, such as lower premiums and cost sharing, and supplemental benefits like vision and dental care. As of 2022, about half of Medicare beneficiaries were enrolled in a Medicare Advantage, or what we sometimes call an MA, plan. Now, there are longstanding concerns that MA plans are paid too much, although what is too much is very much in the eye of the beholder. Those concerns have led to a variety of proposals to reduce spending on MA plans. We'll discuss one of those approaches today. What would happen if we reduced the benchmarks used to set MA payment levels? That's the topic of today's episode of A Health Policy. I'm here with Michael Chernu, Leonard D. Schaefer Professor of Health Policy in the Department of Healthcare Policy at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Chernu is also the chair of MedPAC, the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission, although he's not speaking on behalf of MedPAC today. Dr. Chernu and co-authors published a paper in the April 2023 issue of Health Affairs examining the effects of lower Medicare Advantage benchmarks on plan generosity and benefits. They found that a $1,000 per year decrease in the benchmarks would lead to only moderate increases in annual premiums, deductibles, and copays. We'll discuss these findings and their implications in today's episode. Dr. Chernu, welcome to the program. Alan, it is great to be here. I'm glad to be able to reach your listeners. And as always, it is just wonderful to talk to you. Well, I introduced you as Dr. Chernu, but I've known you long enough. I think I can call you Mike. And I have always enjoyed our interactions. I am sure today will be no different. We get to talk about one of the really thorny, complicated issues in health policy as if there weren't enough. In order to talk about the implications of policy changes for Medicare Advantage, we have to start with some baseline understanding of how MA rates are set and what the role of these payment benchmarks are. So I know it's sort of an impossible task, but for our listeners, can you explain what is a Medicare Advantage payment benchmark? How are they set and why does it matter if we're going to talk about uh, MA benefits and uh, and payment levels? Sure. So the benchmark system is the foundation of how the government sets what it pays the private plans, the MA plans. And in every county, a benchmark is set as a multiple of what the enrollees in the fee-for-service portion of Medicare would spend. So in expensive counties, it's a little bit less than fee-for-service spending in less expensive counties, it's actually a bit more than that. Once the benchmark is set in a county, the MA plans bid um, for what they will accept. Um, If the plans bid above the benchmark, the beneficiaries have to pay that gap as a premium. If the plans bid below the benchmark, and most do, 90% plus do, a portion of that gap between the benchmark and the bid can be used to finance these extra benefits that you mentioned for beneficiaries, lower cost sharing, lower premiums, et cetera. So when benchmarks go up, it's easier for the plans to bid below them and give benefits to beneficiaries. And if the benchmarks go down, 
there's less of a gap between the bid and the benchmark and the beneficiaries would conceptually get less. Um, before we talk about that in more detail, it's also important to note that this payment to the plans also reflects the health status of the beneficiaries that enroll in the plan through a system that's known as risk adjustment. And the payments also reflect plan performance on a bunch of quality measures, sometimes known as the STARS program. So the benchmarks, the STARS, and the coding and the multiple of fee-for-service all contribute to what MA plans get paid. Well, that was uh, crystal clear to me, and I think it probably will be to our listeners. So what you've described is an environment where you use the fee-for-service cost as sort of a starting point, and then there are some modifications to that, but it turns into this benchmark. And since most bids are below benchmark, that creates some space for the plan to do something for the enrollees with the gap between the benchmark uh, and what their bid is. Uh, so you've already described the, the, that it's uh, highly typical for the bids to come in below. What happens with those? Let's get a little bit more specific. Um, these rebates come back to the uh, plans. How do they play out in terms of reducing pe- premiums or uh, providing extra benefits? What what do plans do when they when they bid below the benchmark? So there's a lot of variation across plans and across areas, but as a general rule, they will um, often bid so that uh, premiums go down. So they might, for example, reduce the Part uh, D premium. Um, there's many examples of plans that offer more benefits. Um, but they do so at zero cost to the beneficiary. That's called a zero premium plan. Um, Medicare itself is not a particularly generous benefit package. Patients have to pay a lot out of pocket when they seek care. And the extra funding for the MA plans or the, the gap between the bid and the benchmark can be used to reduce what beneficiaries have to go, have to pay when they see their doctor or see the, go to the hospital. Um, and things like that. In addition to those financial uh, uses of the um, rebate dollars and the payments in general, the plans can offer supplemental benefits. You mentioned some vision, dental, hearing, transportation, fitness membership. There's a lot of uh, a lot of these types of benefits. As you noted, most of the bids come in under, and that creates sort of this natural question here, which is. If you're trying to save money on Medicare, which we always are, and particularly if you're trying to save money in Medicare Advantage, if you make the benchmark lower, then there's less space between the benchmark and the bid, and that creates less givebacks to the enrollees. And of course, enrollees don't want to give anything back, and the plans don't want to lose the Uh, marketing advantage of saying, hey, sign up for our plan, you'll get all these goodies. So if your goal is to save money by reducing benchmarks, you worry about what's going to be lost. And your study, this one, you've done many, but this one that we just published, uh, looks at what would be lost. So what do you find? One thing to keep in mind is that right now, the rebates, which is a measure of the generosity of plans, are essentially at an all-time high. And what we find is when you cut the benchmarks, we use $1,000 in our paper just as a metric. It's about 10%. Um, When you cut them, you in fact do see 
uh, less generous coverage, as you suggested. But the effects aren't very big because there's a lot of adjustments. The plans, for example, can lower their bids in response to a lower benchmark, which enables them to continue to offer much of the benefits they were offering before um, for less. Um, and so the tension in the narratives around this is often between an accounting framework, which often holds the bid constants and says you're going to lose all of this, and what I would argue is more of an economics framework, which assumes there's going to be a whole bunch of equilibrium adjustments, and those adjustments uh, offset to some extent, not completely, the impact of those lower benchmarks. And just to be clear, we're not a, a journal club here. We're not going deep into methods. But just to be clear, the way you reached this conclusion was by looking at as benchmarks have increased over time, you see what gets added and you sort of flip that and do the inverse and say, given what tends to happen when they go up, this is what we would expect to happen as they go down. Is that a close approximation? I'm going to say that's an approximation, Alan. <laughs> oh, I thought I did better than that. Well, we do do that, but it's more that we exploit variation across counties in the rates with which they go up and the variation across counties in this multiple of fee-for-service spending. So there's a lot of things that are causing variation in what plans get paid uh, that are in the regulations. There's some very... Um, nuanced regulations to determine the change in benchmarks in any given county. And we use that variation to do essentially what you said. Okay. So I'm going to take that as a friendly amendment, which is there's a lot of variation both over time and across county. And you take advantage of that variation to understand the effects of benchmarks. Is that? Yes. Okay. I, I, I didn't want to be too far off. That, that's perfect. Okay. <laughs> and, um, so you just mentioned that uh, the rebates are at an all-time high. Is that the primary motivation at this point for uh, people looking at the question of whether they should come down or are there other factors going on right now? You know, there's, there's again, a lot of different perspectives on this topic. I think there is a general sense that from the inception of the Medicare Advantage program, the philosophy was that we would make it um, – cost, put it in cost parity with fee-for-service. We believe that the plans could deliver benefits for less because of some of the restrictions that you mentioned. They do prior auth, they have narrower networks, and we would take those savings and share them with beneficiaries in terms of more generous benefits. That was sort of the basic notion, and that's a reasonable view. And so what has happened for a range of reasons, some of which are intentional, like the multiples being above 100%, some of which... Uh, uh, are unintentional, like the way the coding is working. Um, the plans have actually never been paid at parity with fee-for-service. The estimates now, again, depending on where you get the estimates, I'm going to give you a number that's loosely a MedPAC number, give or take round numbers, 5% more than fee-for-service. So there's a narrative which is we need to save money, and if we're going to save money, we should put these two programs at parity. Um Maybe you'll ask me later, there's some other sort of second order problems if they're not at parity and everyone joins the MA plans. Um, I think most people like the fact that individuals get more benefits. So none, no one I know, no stakeholder I know wants to cut the payment simply because they want there to be less benefits. It's all driven by a fiscal concern and by a perceived lack of balance between what we're paying in the fee-for-service sector and what we're paying in the MA sector. 
Well, that's a great framing for the discussion I want to have about the implications of this. I want to have a better understanding of the pros and cons of different levels of payment and uh, how we figure out whether or not if we are paying more, it's worth it. We'll talk about some of those topics after we take a short break. The innovative online Master of Science in Health Policy and Law from UCSF and UC Law San Francisco merges study in health policy and law and makes it possible for you to work while pursuing your degree. Even better, you'll be able to employ your new knowledge to your career in real time. Prepare to lead the future of health. Apply by the March 31st priority deadline to join the fall 2024 class. Learn more at uclawsf.edu forward slash HPL. And we're back. I'm speaking with Dr. Michael Chernu about the effects of reducing Medicare Advantage payment benchmarks. As we learned before the break, the actual direct effect for the enrollee in terms of the premiums and deductibles are, are actually pretty modest, which would suggest that this is a, a place you could go to pull some money out of the program without having huge negative effects for the enrollees. But uh, anything that is seen as a takeaway is is not desirable. And there is, of course, controversy, as we discussed before the break, about um, how much the payment rate uh, gap is between fee-for-service and Medicare Advantage. So I want to try to now put this more in a policy context. And again, I'm very mindful of your role on MedPAC, certainly not asking you to take a position here. Um, but one of the things we talk about a lot in healthcare is if you pay more and get more, maybe that's okay. Um, what you don't want to do is pay more and get less or pay more and not get any more. So this looks like one of these situations where uh, if we're paying more, but the enrollees are getting more, that creates a, a sort of a, a, a policy quandary, which is, is it worth it? Like, are they getting the right amount more? Are the plans benefiting uh, inordinately from it? And what about the people who aren't in MA? Are they getting too little? So I know you've given a lot of thought to this. If I just want to even make sure I've got the right question. If I were a policymaker saying, yeah, we're paying more, but they're getting more, is it worth it? How would you, how would you guide me to even think about a question like, is it worth it? Yeah. Well, first, let me give you a little bit of a sense of the magnitudes of this. The rebates have roughly doubled since 2018. So um, I'm not sure in 2018 we would be having a conversation about whether or not we should double the rebates and spend that extra money. Um, the challenge with answering whether they are worth it, that whether the added benefits are worth it, is complicated because we don't know for some of the supplemental benefits how much they're being used, how much they're valued by beneficiaries, um, what the trade-off use for those dollars are. The, you were nice enough to note that I'm speaking in my role as a professor, as a researcher, but the MedPAC recommendation has been and continues to be that there should be some modest cuts to the program to uh, create more parity between MA and fee-for-service payment. Um, 
One reason why I think it makes sense to start with modest cuts is we can begin to assess what is actually lost um, and how we do that instead of making large one-time cuts. Um, but again, there is no free lunch. The reason why uh, benefits are at an all-time high is because payment is much higher. It should not be surprising that if you lower payment back down, you will lose some of those benefits. And so we just have to decide the extent to which we believe that the role of the Medicare Advantage program is to cover up the gaps in the Medicare benefit package, which are large, or uh, beyond that that could be financed with simply program or plan efficiencies. Yeah, so that seems to me like the puzzle here, which is, do we want people on Medicare to have vision benefits and hearing uh, benefits? We do, but we haven't been able to pull together the political will to add it to the traditional Medicare program. So is it equitable to say, well, you only get those benefits if you're willing to accept the limitations inherent in an MA plan? Um, is, is that, I don't know, do I have even the right question? Well, I mean, it is certainly the case that, um, the current system favors those who are willing to accept the efficiencies of the MA plans, the network restrictions, the prior authorization. And again, the original conceptualization of Medicare Advantage was exactly that, where if you were willing to make some sacrifice in terms of some of these other things, you could be rewarded in sharing in some of the efficiencies of that program. Um, whether that's equitable or not is, I think, a little bit of a semantic question, but that was sort of the goal. What has happened is that the government subsidy of the Medicare Advantage plans now exceeds that uh, for, for folks that are still in traditional fee-for-service. That seems a little bit more problematic. So you're getting those extra benefits, not simply because of the efficiencies that the plans are creating, but you're getting them because of certain policy decisions that were made that favors people that are willing to accept those restrictions. Yeah. So that seems like a really helpful way to think about it. So if if I'm giving up something like Joyce to get something, that's my decision. If I can only get a benefit because I'm over in a part of the Medicare world that's getting extra money due to policy not due to efficiency, then that does seem inequitable in a certain way. I think that's probably uh, more than semantics. But let's go to this question then. You you alluded to it earlier you, that, um, of course, MA is now half the program and on track to continue to grow. Some of that presumably is for exactly this reason. If you can get if, if there's more of a subsidy to it, people are going to head over there. But at the very beginning, you described the benchmark as being based on the fee-for-service spending. And as that shrinks, that becomes a harder and harder base on which to design your program. So is the whole structure sort of need to be, does the whole structure sort of need to be rethought as the share of uh, people in MA has gotten this large? The answer is yes. The question is when. Um, mathematically, you can't have a Medicare Advantage program if you don't have a fee-for-service program. And there are some uh, markets where the Medicare Advantage share is actually much larger than the 50%. You mentioned the 50% on average, but of course, that's a range. Um, CMS has a number of mechanisms that they use to adjust for that. 
We can debate how well those mechanisms work and how well they will continue to work. But right now, Medicare Advantage is a very good deal for beneficiaries. The plans are probably, I don't know, give or take 10% more efficient than fee-for-service. Um, take that money, add it on top of the extra payment. That's a lot of added benefits. It's a pretty good deal if you're willing to accept some of the restrictions that MA puts in place. And that continued growth um, challenges the core math that the program was built on. It was designed to be a small part of what is basically a fee-for-service system. Soon you will have an MA system that's the dominant form of Medicare uh, with a somewhat smaller and shrinking fee-for-service system uh, by its side that it's all based on. And I think that will necessitate some changes to the MA program. And it's just a question of when we will have to do that. So you keep referring to it as the fee-for-service program. And I've heard people say that's not even really the right term anymore because of all of the alternative payment models. And uh, there's a lot of not fee-for-service on the traditional side of the ledger. So that seems to me to be both a uh, helpful and maybe makes this even more confusing, which is if your benchmark isn't fee-for-service anymore, um, if some of those alternative models are attractive and can create savings, if some of those went back to enrollees as well, could we sort of have a parallel traditional that isn't just the old Medicare fee-for-service, but isn't exactly MA? Yeah. So, so first of all, thank you for calling me out in front of all your listeners. <laughs> um, always a joy. Um, you are, of course, exactly right. I use the term fee-for-service because it's commonly used and it's easily accessible. Sometimes people call it original Medicare. Sometimes I call it traditional Medicare. Uh, my spell checker always makes that like trademark. But in any case, um, uh, your point about alternative payment models in the uh, original Medicare uh, side is spot on. In fact, the motivation behind many of them was to sort of cut out the middleman, cut out the plans and just go straight to the incentives for efficiency. The uh, ACO programs, in my view, by the way, have been successful, not nearly on the same scale as uh, the Medicare Advantage plans. They don't use the same level of prior auth. Um, they don't have the same network restrictions in the same way. Um, but in any case, the challenge with passing benefits back to the people in fee-for-service in these other payment models is in a health plan, you know before you enroll, you're in the plan. You know what your benefits are. A lot of these other models are, uh, people are assigned to them um, ex post. And a lot of the coverage that people in the original Medicare program have is through Medigap plans or med sub plans or plans to their employer that control the benefits. They're not controlled by the entities that are bearing the risk on the fee-for-service side. So while it makes sense to think about how we could pass some of the savings on to those individuals that who are uh, aligned with, say, an alternative payment model like an accountable care organization, the actual mechanisms to do that are pretty complicated. So at some point, you can't really replicate MA without it just being MA. And uh, so why try? But it does seem to me that if you're looking to narrow the gap between the benchmarks and the bids, one way to do it would be to bring down the cost of the fee-for-service side of the program. And then by formula, uh, the, the benchmarks would go down and the gap would start to close. 
A hundred percent. If in fact the fee-for-service system became more efficient writ large, if a lot of the types of efficiencies that the MA plans are getting were achieved in the fee-for-service system, you would in fact uh, find uh, a gap between them. And, and by the way, in that context, you would still worry that Medicare beneficiaries are now faced with more out-of-pocket spending. So uh, you do want to bring down spending, but of course, there's a lot of mechanisms you could put in place to lower the benchmarks to get them to, to lower that gap. Um, but I think this other narrative, which is increasingly prominent, is using the Medicare Advantage program in general to achieve uh, access to some of these vision dental hearing, lower cost sharing. Um, there's a lot of equity issues involved in that because of the impact of better uh, benefits across the income spectrum. Certain types of people you know, may find that more important than others based on, you know, income and other factors. So it's complicated to figure out how to maintain this, how to get the efficiencies that the system can generate back to the beneficiaries and particularly the beneficiaries that need uh, the better protection. Yeah. So that does seem sort of like in the theoretical model here is simple and the practical, I shouldn't say is simple. The, the theoretical model is, can be expressed and the practical ex of it is almost uh, is is very hard to, to envision. So we want people to benefit from the efficiencies that are created by a choice they've made to give something up, but we don't want extra dollars flowing for other reasons that can create inequities. Uh, turning that into an actual program with people enrolled and all of that is much more complex. Uh, as we come to a close, I guess I'm going to give you the choice of putting on your MedPAC hat or your professor hat to think about um, where you would say we go with this. You mentioned that MedPAC has already said sort of incremental reductions in the benchmarks, but uh I'll let you be a little bit more expansive. You've mentioned uh, the risk adjustment formulas. You've mentioned the fact that MA was conceived of as being a relatively small add-on to a much larger program. A lot has changed. And uh, how do we come closer to that theoretical goal of people benefiting from the efficiencies of their choices while competing on a level playing field? Where would you take us? Yeah, so obviously benchmarks are just one lever. There's a bunch of more technical things that are very important around the risk adjustment system. There has been recently uh, a change in the risk adjustment model um, that was just finalized last week. And I think that's important. And there's a number of further steps that can be made in that vein of what I would call just fixing certain problems with the way the programs operate. Um and I think that's certainly one step. And MedPAC has a bunch of recommendations about how to do that. Um, I think then there becomes a much bigger question about how to deal with the extra benefits in the benefit package and what to do if MA gets too big to really continue to be built off of fee-for-service. Um, as a plug, there will be a discussion of this in the June MedPAC report. But some of the things we're considering include standardizing the benefit packages. For example, Medigap standardized the benefit packages to great success. It facilitated choice, facilitated competition. Uh, so it wasn't just one benefit package. There's a, there were a bunch, but they were all loosely standardized. It's hard to do with networks and things like that. But there's certain ways I think you can make some advances there. 
And then there's the question about if you can't build the um, benchmarks, uh, if you can't build the MA payments off of fee-for-service based benchmarks, what do you do? Um, the two predominant approaches, which I'm not going to advocate for one or the other, involve some aspect of bidding, which hinges on how well you think competition in healthcare works. That's another podcast, Alan. Okay. Um, or what uh, we call uh, administrative benchmarks, where the government takes a sort of more budgetary role and decides what level of benefits they want to finance, and they hold someone, a plan or a provider group, accountable for that. Um, many other countries use versions of that type of model where there's a budget, you get a set of benefits and the government moves it up or down. And there's pros and cons on that a lot based on how much you think, how well you think the government will do that. Um, but I think that's where we're going to have to go one way or another. We have harvested, I'm not sure that's the right word, but in any case, we have taken a lot of the savings we can get from lower fees to providers. In fact, I think a lot of the pressure that we feel now is that the fee trajectories in Medicare for providers, physician fees, hospital fees, are really quite low. Um, and so there's going to be a pressure to increase, in my opinion, those fees. And so we need some way to support the system with efficiencies. And that requires us to make some of these, I think, bigger picture changes. We don't have to do them tomorrow. We don't have to do them the day after tomorrow. But I think sometime in the next several years, we really need to think about how we want to reform Medicare and the benefit package writ large to make it much more uh, consistent with where modern benefit design is, where modern coverage is. And the Medicare program really hasn't done that so far. Well, that seems like a good place to end. There are uh, constant needs for adjustment and refinement, but there's also the need to step back and absorb how much the world has changed since this program came into existence. And doing that is really hard, but uh, maybe we are uh, due for it about now or sometime uh, in the next few years. Uh, Mike, uh, Dr. Chernu, a pleasure to talk to you. It's great to be able to publish your work uh, yet again. And thank you for being my guest on A Health Podacy. And Alan or Dr. Weil, <laughs> it is wonderful to talk with you, as always. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about A Health Podacy.